0: so good evening everyone thanks for joining another episode of the racing line podcast today we've got something um, a little bit different from the first few episodes rather than doing um, a race review we've actually got an interview with um, an australian racer someone who's um, gone overseas to race with and against the best um, who has some hopefully unique and interesting perspectives on the European scene and someone who can share a little bit of insight into the struggles that Australian drivers face um, when going overseas. So um, I'd like to introduce Joey Mawson. Thanks for jumping on the show Um, and we'll dive straight into it. So Joey, for those people who might be listening but don't know a whole lot about you, how would you describe yourself um, just as a day-to-day kind of guy?
1: Um, Yeah, I would say I'm a I guess, a, a very healthy, conscious person. Um, I look after my health a lot these days and um, I spend a, a lot of my time training. Um, of course, we have to be fit uh, as a racing driver, but you know, in the recent years, especially, I've taken a big passion into it um, and I, I dedicate a lot of my, my time away from the track um, into that aspect of my life.
0: And, and, yep. and also, just taking into consideration, obviously, that you're from Australia, um, what was your like earliest memories of racing before you actually started driving? What was kind of that catalyst um, that kind of got you interested or gave you the bug for
1: motorsport? Um, I mean, I, I grew up watching motorsport, you know, with my dad on TV. Um, in those days, obviously, Schumacher was was winning in uh, in the Ferrari and in V eight Supercars. That was the era of Mark um, you know, dominance, uh, yeah. but. I got the opportunity to try a go-kart when I was around uh, six years old. Um, one of my dad's mates had a go-kart and gave me a, a trial and, you know, I absolutely loved it and got hooked. Um, and, yeah, basically um, from there, obviously it started as a hobby in, in go-karting and then, you know, it slowly turned from a hobby into a, a, a dream and then a profession. And you're,
0: and you're from um, Western Sydney,
1: aren't you? Is that right? Like a parkway? Uh, yeah, I mean, a more Liverpool way. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, southwest Sydney. So that
0: track would have been
1: maybe Eastern Creek? It uh, was actually Butterfly Farm for me, the first Oh, track really? Yeah. I it's I Butterfly know. Farm track. <laughs> it's a pretty really good track to learn on, especially because um, it's so tight and technical. And, uh, yeah, so a lot of drivers, um, you know, from, from New South Wales, particularly, they grew up driving around. Eastern Creek, at, at club level, you know, they all kind of had their first taste of a go-kart at Butterfly Farm. I'm yeah, taking, well, I wouldn't have picked that. <laughs> my, um, my
0: brother out in a go-kart for the first time this week at the Butterfly Farm. Crazy. Um, <laughs> that's,
1: yeah. It's
0: a good track, good little track.
1: Absolutely, man. Uh, it's good to learn on.
0: Let me just um just, uh, another, like, obviously, you've answered the question about how you got into F1, but my earliest memory of you probably was... 2016 or 17 um and it was kind of uh, i was actually looking into mick schumacher because i it was kind of when everyone started saying oh michael schumacher's son's starting to to race in whatever it was f4 or something like that and i was looking into the championship and there was this guy that beat him a few times that had a james hunt helmet on (laughs) and i ended up realizing that it was an aussie guy and i'm like oh this is awesome like we've got an aussie guy racing against you know um mick schumacher but i was just wondering where did that where did that design come from? Or is there something about James Hunt that you like or that you would aspire towards or what, I just wanted to know what the reason for the helmet was Uh,
1: to be honest. So the story was um, actually I've rocked up to the first race and uh, my helmet wasn't deemed um, like the safety standard wasn't up to the regulations because they changed it at the last minute. So actually half of the F4 grid, which is in total about 40 drivers weren't allowed to use the helmet that they had. So an uh, emergency. I bought a, a black carbon helmet, and I didn't have enough time to paint it, so I didn't want to have a plain, you know, carbon-looking helmet like half the grid did. So I wanted to, to, you know, have a little bit of design. So I decided to um, use the James Hunt design because um, it was simple to be able to do with, you know, a little bit of vinyl that was left over at the at the workshop at Banama Sport Racing. Yeah. Um. And yeah, to be honest, it really it really turned out good and a lot of people have asked me to you know keep using that design because uh, everyone loved it but uh, yeah it was uh, it was really cool it was just perfectly fitting with the vanama sport car and that era that i was in
0: so you did the design yourself just with vinyl
1: yeah correct just at the workshop with leftover vinyl
0: yeah <laughs> wow, that's that's so cool eh? Yeah, it's like awesome. so so low-tech for such a high-tech industry. I know, right? <laughs> exactly. Considering you can spend like three grand getting, you know, just the helmet painted. Insane. Yeah, yep.
1: yeah. I mean, the helmet itself just alone costs five and a half grand. So, And then I just stick it wow. up with the vinyl. But um, it turned out to look good. I loved it. It looked really good with the black car. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a, a, a cool design.
0: So obviously we've just touched on just um karting just at the beginning of your career but i was just doing a little bit of research into obviously um your racing exploits it seems like you raced in kind of the rotax finals in scusa a bit of european karting as well so how did your like how did your karting career start and and progress in australia and then what kind of prompted the move to europe
1: um so basically i I started racing when I was around seven years old. Um, you know, it, it started at club level and then slowly grew to, you know, doing regional carding and then, you know, started doing state championships a few years later. Um, yeah, I, I raced domestically in Australia till 2010. And then I had my first international race at Las Vegas. Yep. Um, so that was really cool. It, it went really well. I ended up coming fifth. Um, and I was leading the final at one point until I had a, an engine issue. So it was a really, really cool first experience. Um, then after that, I ended up going to uh, the Rotax World Finals a year after. and up qualifying for Australia. And um, that was an amazing experience again. Um, and then after that, I did the Under-18s World Championship. And that kind of gave me the opportunity to establish connections, to be able to race in Europe full-time um, the year after. So uh, the year after in 2013, um, I moved to to Europe and uh, started racing uh, full-time internationally. And uh, yeah, that was kind of the start of my European journey. Um, You know, I ended up being there for eight years. So it uh, it was a really, really cool time. Yeah. So as a fellow Western Sydney boy, and we obviously know racing's a really expensive sport, um, how big of a jump was it to get from Australian Australian karting or racing to to Europe in terms of finance? Um, yeah, I mean it was it was a pretty significant jump. Um, the thing is, in Europe, there's uh, obviously a lot of drivers with budget, so you know a lot of drivers that are willing to to bring so much budget. Um, I was very fortunate that I had a really good deal with Topkart, um, so uh, I didn't end up you know didn't end up being so expensive for me. Um, but still I was also fortunate to have some support from the Australian Motorsport foundation, um, to be able to, to bring some budget and, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's really beneficial to, to do carding in Europe. I mean, the level there is, um, you know, it's, it's at another division compared to Australia, although we have a, a great, you know, pool of talent here. Um, it's just a different style, and I think it's, uh, it's really good to prepare a driver, you know, for his career, whether he's coming back home to card in Australia or to, to move into single-seaters after.
0: So that connection that you had created with Top Cart, was that something that you'd built in Australia and then kind of they gave you the opportunity to, to move over to Europe or was it was something that you built once you got to Europe?
1: Um, so it was established through actually Tim Craig, um, I raced for, for Tim Craig, which was Kart 1 racing um, during my junior career in Australia. and He was the one that gave me the connection to be able to compete with Top Kart in the under-18s. Yep. Um, obviously, when I was racing there, I was you know, with the factory team. Um, although, you know, we were basically like a customer and using the, the factory team. Um, and, you know, that turned out to go really well. Um, and from there, I was able to to establish a connection and a deal to, to compete in Europe full-time the year after. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, what's the hardest thing about attracting and keeping those sponsors when you're racing? Um, yeah. I, I just imagine it would be really difficult to, to manage that, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, when I look back now, um, yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm surprised I was able to, to handle the sponsors at that young age, because I'm still learning and if, and improving and, and continuing to understand how to, you know, serve as sponsors and give value back. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, nowadays I have a sponsorship manager, so um, I'm really able to get a lot from him and, and, and learn a lot, um, you know, and have a, a kind of corporate, um, what's the right word? Yeah, knowledge from a corporate kind of world. Yeah, nice. So, so just before we move into kind
0: of going from carts into cars, so for if, if there might be there might be you know young carter listening to this and they they obviously racing in Australia or they're you know competing at national events and things like that. What would you say is the biggest difference between you know someone who's karting in Australia with the national events trying to make a career out of it and then obviously. Um, those those people that are doing it in Europe, because I can I can understand there's uh, a, there's like probably an infrastructure difference just with the amount of factory support that there seems to be um, in Europe, but then also just things like logistics. So for example, if you're a you know carter racing in Australia, this is something that you've experienced firsthand. Like obviously there's a lot of money that that it takes to to fund a even a season in karting, but then also the things like just the the vast you know distances that people need to travel to race from you know uh, melbourne to to brisbane or you know north um you know perth and things like that like australia is so huge um yep. whereas if you're racing in europe i feel like um everything's a lot closer in that regard so 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 when we're talking about the finances of it is the financing the actual racing uh, is the financing obviously the logistics or the movement? I mean, if someone was in Australia and was thinking about going and racing in Europe from a financial point of view, would it be fairly similar um, or is it at another level?
1: Um, I can only really talk from the knowledge of my era because, um, you know, since I've um, graduated from carding here, I mean, the carding scene in Australia has changed so much. I mean, the yeah. amount of budgets that people are spending, you know, in the current era is unreal, unreal. I mean you know you could you could nearly spend uh you know that budget in a in car racing you know at, at formula ford formula four level what some people are, are spending in karting here yeah uh, but uh i would say most of the cost in europe comes from being with the factory team and getting you know the factory support um over there for example you know you you race a a race meeting with two chassis um instead of just one so you got two chassis two engines you know double the parts that you're using assuming a lot more tires as well exactly a lot more tires as well um yeah everything's just they just basically burn more money in in all aspects They're, they're throwing everything at it there i mean some drivers even uh rock up to the to the race meeting with free chassis um test out which one they'll pick out of the three or even sometimes four um you know so and then, have to.
0: from a financial point of view, is that like we're talking for a season, you know, in the high hundreds and thousands of dollars
1: to do, oh, do it at that level? Easy, easy. I think in Europe, you know, some people in karting are spending 150,000. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, crazy. Same. yeah, like I remember at the time that I was racing. Um, if you wanted to race, for example, with Cosmic Factory team it was costing around €10,000 per race. Uh, but like wow. For example, if you did like the European Championships, it was €10,000 per, per round. Wow. That's crazy. I can imagine yeah. the jump into cars as well would be huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, in cars, uh, you're also spending probably in Formula 4, €300,000 easily. Yeah, well... Uh, but at least, you, you know, in F4, you're testing a lot. You're getting a lot of driving time. So um, compared to other championships that I've done, it's probably the championship that gives you most value for money.
0: Okay. So that's, a good, that's a good segue into kind of your movement from karting into car racing. So obviously, you've done the karting in Europe. You had the, the support from Topkart. Then what was... Well, at what point did you say, I want to give the the car racing a go? And was it a decision that obviously you would have to have made, you know, with your parents um, or with with some kind of financial backing? But can you just talk us through kind of what your thought process was um, at that time? And then obviously thinking about the financial um, point of view of that as well.
1: Yeah. So um, I always had a goal of moving to cars around 16. Um, The only reason I I moved, you know, later at a later age was mainly because of financial reasons. Um, After I did that karting year, uh, that one year in Europe uh, in karting, the Australian Motorsport Foundation, which then became the CAMS Foundation, um, they decided to basically uh, support me in the move to cars. Um, So from that point of view, the, the financial support that I got from them went up a fair bit which was basically what opened the door and allowed me the opportunity to, to finally make the move to to car racing. Okay. So that's a pretty good
0: initiative. And then, and just from like, obviously you, you've kind of said that Formula 4 is, you know, in the thousands, you know, $400,000, I think it was that you just said. So was that, were you primarily funded by CAMS at that time to help you do that? Or you obviously were still had, you know, you know, money coming in from some other sponsorship or from
1: your parents as well as all coming uh, from CAMS? Yeah, uh, a lot of it was from CAMS. Um, yeah. I still had some support from my parents, but um, yeah, I was fortunate at that time that CAMS took uh, a, a big chunk of the, the budget so my parents didn't have to, to yeah, put in as, as much um, because I had a, you know, real tough time in carding. I mean, yeah, a lot of... <laughs> A lot of um, red bills coming in karting to, yeah. you know, at home to be able to keep racing and, and going. So, very grateful for, for them to be able to sacrifice so much for me. But um, I would say, yeah, once I moved on to cars, the financial stress towards my parents started to become less and less, which was uh, a real blessing.
0: And were there many more at that, at that time that you made the move into karting? Were there many more Australian drivers that were trying to make that jump?
1: Um, to be honest, when I was in Europe, uh, there wasn't many Aussies that were in Europe um, in in karting. Actually, I was I was the only Aussie that was in in karting at that time. Um, there hadn't been a few drivers. There had been Aussies in the past that had been karting full time in Europe, but not for quite a few generations. Um, the last time was probably in the early to two thousands. Yeah. Um, and after myself, you know, a lot of Aussies started to to move over there full-time uh, drivers like Oscar Piastri and, and Jack Doohan. Um, so it was really good to see. I mean, it, I guess it kind of started to show some pathway for the Aussie drivers that, you know, wanted the Formula One dream.
0: Even, even thinking about uh, just the progression of that now with like people like um, James Warden, who's, I think he signed up, Is he signed up to the Ferrari Academy? And he's, just, he's still racing for Parallel? Yep. Which is um, awesome to see. Yeah. So, so then we move into obviously you move into Formula Four, and you know this this kind of blew my mind because obviously when I was thinking about you, I always think about you and racing against Mick Schumacher. But I didn't really understand the scope of the people that you were racing against. Like there's some people that we look at now that are racing in Europe in you know lower in Formula One, in Formula Two, but even you know racing IndyCar, racing in Le Mans. Like you you've raced against some some hardcore. hardcore drivers um so obviously you move into formula four you're racing against the likes of harrison newey pato award um you know, in your first season you come fourth in the championship you get three race wins you know what are your memories of that initial french formula four season
1: um yeah i have mainly mostly good memories um i managed to have a really really good first weekend kind of a dream debut And it wasn't really expected because all throughout testing, you know, um, I was never really the quickest or or showing, uh, you know, a good amount of pace. So I went into the first weekend hoping to just, you know, crack into the top five. um, And then I ended up qualifying on pole for my first race and winning two races out of the three. Following that, I had a, a bit of an up and down season. It was a bit of a rollercoaster. I had some good weekends, some really, really shocking weekends. Um, but overall, in general, um, you know, the first season in cars was good and uh, managed to turn a few heads and particularly um, keep the, the sponsors happy, which was, you know, Cam's foundation. Um, because obviously I was relying on them for for a lot of support. So um, that gave me an opportunity to move into Germany for um, the following year.
0: What would you, What would you say was the biggest hurdle that you had to overcome going from going from carding and then, you know, jumping into F the F four car, what was the biggest learning curve?
1: Mm, Very good question.
0: Um. I mean, obviously you're in a situation where you've done karting, you know, for a couple of years in Australia, then overseas, and then you initially jump into the car. What was that initial? Like, Oh, this is a little bit different to what I was expecting.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, it was I mean the first initial adaptation I didn't find was too difficult. Um, but uh after, after settling in, you know, to really get the last few tents. Um I, I was always struggling in that regard, and particularly when it came to new tyres. That was probably the, the hardest bit I found in my first year of car like car racing. Um, whenever I would put new tires on, I would barely improve. Um, so that never showed much reflection in testing or in qualifying um but uh in general I was always pretty strong in the races but uh the difference I would say big difference I would say between karting and car racing is if you didn't qualify well in karting you had the whole weekend to work yourself you know forward in the heat races to then get a good good position for the pre-final final whereas in car racing um you know you qualify and then that's where you start the race so if you qualify bad it already puts you you know on the back foot
0: yeah for sure and, and on reflection now that you, it's, you're obviously a few years removed from, from obviously that initial feeling, did you ever kind of think, oh, that might have been the reason why I wasn't able to activate the tyres at that
1: particular time in your career? Um, yeah, I think in general, I think on the new tyres, I would always tend to, to overdrive the car. Um, yeah, I would say that was probably my biggest biggest weakness in car racing and, and probably why, you know, in general over the season, you know, the weekends that I struggled was always because I, I would qualify bad and then I would end up in, you know, incidents by being in the mix. Yeah. Um, always the successful seasons is the ones where, you know, my qualifying is is on point and I'm always in the front row and yeah, basically staying out of trouble.
0: So, so then obviously your French F4 season gives you the opportunity to go uh, and racing in Germany in 2015 and so were you race what team were you racing for in the French season was that um, the same team as that you moved into Germany
1: with or, or a different setup uh, so in French F4 was actually um, centrally based so we all raced for the same team okay uh, the whole championship was run by uh, the French Academy FFSA so all the cars were, were built at the one workshop um, and then, yeah, we, we, all, we would swap engineers basically every two races, um, all the drivers would swap engineers. So it was, it was, it was kind of like an entry level to really get an understanding of car racing at a, at a, at a lower budget. Um, that was the difference between French F4 and German F4. Okay. Uh, French, F, French F4 was probably around 140,000 euro at the time, whereas German F4 was, you know, 300, 400.
0: Wow. Yeah. So, so that French F4 was kind of designed to, with parity in mind, like to kind of give everyone Correct. the same opportunity.
1: Correct. Correct.
0: Yeah. So then obviously 2015, you jump into German um, F4. Um, you come third in the championship, five wins. You race against, you know, Lando Norris, Robert Schwarzman, uh, Mick Schumacher, even drivers like Job van Mattia Drudy that are racing in sports cars now what was your you know m- memories of, of that season um,
1: yeah it was to be honest it was a really cool season we always had a lot of cars and um, yeah it kind of reminded me of karting in Europe it was always very intense um, a lot happening that year um, yeah I have very good memories of, of that season and particularly now when I reflect on the drivers that I got to race against um, it's pretty cool to see where some other drivers, you know, have ended up.
0: And this is probably a, you know, an interesting question, but you kind of, you hear about, um, you know, sportsmen who have tried to make it in a particular industry and, you know, um, they, they never kind of get to where the people that they were, you know, playing against or racing against are at. And they kind of have a you know a view of the sport that's a little bit jaded, just based on the fact that they've obviously been in the industry. They kind of see the inequality in opportunities that people get. But when you see kind of those people that you were racing against, some of them, like we said in Formula One, DTM sports cars, what what's your
1: overarching, you know, feeling in that regard? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I I see it as the glass half half full um I was very fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to even racing cars for in the first place, and then after that for so many years in a row you know for eight years in a row in europe um of course some some drivers have gone on to make it to bigger and better things um but uh you know i'm I'm blessed for the opportunities that I've had to to race against them, and you know I'm still able to racing cars um you know present and live my dream so yeah i'm I'm happy.
0: Is, it, is it any of those drivers that you raced against that you kind of find yourself
1: rooting for on a Sunday night? Yeah, uh, I would say Mick Schumacher. Um, Mick Schumacher mainly that I've raced against.
0: That's, that's kind of a good segue to go into 2016. So you go back to um, the German F4 championship again, um, racing against Schumacher. You win that season. Um, and I remember following that season with a little bit more um, detail because I was kind of half hoping that Schumacher won, but at the same time, it's always good to have an Australian win as well. And obviously you've been working towards that goal to racing cars for such a long time. You, you go through carding and then you get into the, the chance in F4 and you, and you win the championship. What, how, what was that whole experience like? What was the feeling of, um, you know, winning the championship and then what did it do for your prospects moving forward at that time?
1: um so 2016 was actually a very crucial year um when the season started um uh, podium at the time had told me that um you know because I'd finished third the year before um got naturally going into season I was uh you know gonna gonna be a contender um so they told me that if I didn't win the championship then that was going to be the end of the the line you know the end of the support um, and if I did win, then we would move up to F3 the following season. So it was a, it was a crucial year and, um, thankfully it worked out, uh, you know, across the season, we had, a, a lot of success, um, and managed to have a really cool rivalry with Mick Schumacher. Um, after I won the championship, I got a seat to do European F3 with Panama Sport. Um, and yeah, I. I I have to say, when you win the championship, um, for sure, a lot of people notice it, it. You know, opens a lot of doors and turns a lot of heads. So um, it was a very crucial point in my career. I would say. How
0: did how did an experience like that? I mean, obviously, you're still really young at the time. You've just been told, kind of, it's it's a win it or bin it kind of year for you. What what kind of um, you know, or how should I say, it? how did that pressure play on you? I mean, obviously, you, you, you won the championship and um, looking back on it now, obviously, it seems fairly obvious that you rose to the occasion. But how did that pressure, you know, make you feel at the beginning of the season, you know, throughout the season as well? Was it something that you were constantly thinking about or you had a strong enough mindset to just um, kind of, you know, let the chips fall,
1: fall where they may? Um, I had a strong enough mindset to just, you know, crack on. Um, if anything it motivated me to, to leave no stone unturned and give everything I had. Um, you know I, I put the extra effort into my physical training um, you know into my mindset um, didn't take any days off training I was waking up to, to go train at you know 530 when it was you know cold in the winters. It, I just didn't want to leave any stone unturned and, and wanted to in my own mind uh, work harder than all my competitors so. Um, on reflection i I probably found it as much more of a motivation yeah
0: awesome and then i just i'm just thinking about this now so obviously you you've gone to europe you're racing f4 um kind of doing that whole thing but on a like a just from a personal level like the day-to-day life of joey Mawson at this time what are you what are you doing obviously you're you're showing up at race meetings and and performing but what was the day-to-day you know routine or weekly routine of your life like during
1: those years? Um, so when I was living in Holland, um, I would wake up early in the morning, get my training, you know, done um, first thing. Um, and then after that, I would spend uh, generally each day during the week at the workshop, um, a lot of sim driving um, because Van Amersfoort had three sims at the time. So uh, I would put a, a lot of hours into the sim, um, you know, to the point where sometimes I'd beg the engineers to just let me drive and test and just do mileage. Um, yeah, uh, to be honest, away from that, it was, you know, everything was just racing focus. I'd spend time with engineers, go and do debriefs with them, um, talk about things that, you know, we never wanted to analyze and improve, um, spend time with the mechanics as well um, to really get the team, um, you know, feeling like family. Yeah. So,
0: uh, and how did, you, how did you find the, like the, obviously you're in the sims, you're testing at that time. Were you, was the sim more to learn tracks or to be familiar with tracks? Or you there was, you know, kind of, um, you were able to test different setups and then it would translate to, um, you know, when you got onto the track as well. Was, it, was the simming that advanced at that stage?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty advanced. You just got to be very intelligent with how you use the sim, um, not focusing too much on lap times but more focusing on, you know, when you want to try stuff on the track, you know, how can you improve it? What does it feel like? You know, I, I use more of the sim as a tool to be able to try stuff and be like, mm, that's interesting. I'd like to try that line when I get to the track. Well, I didn't yeah. think of this. Let's try this. Um, the F3, F3 drivers were using the sim extensively. Um, and I would always actually jump in with the F3 drivers uh, when I was in F4 and and go training with them. Um, and it gave me good confidence because, you know, when I was training um, with, with those guys, um, generally I'd be on pace and sometimes even a bit quicker.
0: Okay. And then obviously I'm just looking also at your career now. So in 2016, you did just a couple of races in England in F3, just to yep. the British trophy. Um, so was that just kind of like a weekend thing or just a few races to get people, you know, introduced to the category. What was the the British
1: Autumn Trophy at that, at that time? Um, it was a last minute uh, core deal that I got with uh, with Douglas Motorsport. Um, yeah, it was a really good deal. So, um, you know, I I didn't have any other program that was clashing at the time, and any seat time in a racing car is always beneficial, especially the British F3 was a, a faster car was kind of in between the FIA F3 and the, the F4. Um, so, yeah, it was just a one-off weekend that I could go and uh, compete and obviously try to get a good result. And, um, yeah, we end up just missing out, out on it. And uh, not many people know the story, but I was actually meant to start the last race on pole and my rival was starting seventh. Um, and uh, basically the whole weekend I was just behind on points as I finish i was most consistent but i finished second 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 um but the last race got bogged out and uh yeah because of that um i think it was in a that ended up winning it you're
0: racing against the likes of dan tiktum and even um i saw marcus armstrong was in that um yeah in that series at that time as well, which is you know pretty cool but old dan hit uh, eh? interesting yeah.
1: character mate <laughs> he, he very indeed. much is <laughs> indeed indeed Look, um, he has a reputation off the track, but my experiences with him have been very positive. He's always been very polite to me and never nasty on track, so I don't have anything bad to say about him.
0: <laughs> I, think he's a, I think he's an awesome driver, to be honest with you. I think he's one of those real kind of um, doesn't give a crap kind of drivers, but he just seems to put his foot in it um, from a, from a um, um, not marketing, but kind of sponsorship point of view. And we've got yeah. the things that he says. Sometimes is he still part of the Williams setup, or did they did they let him go? He got dropped halfway through the year, I think. Yeah, thought so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> said, said something about being faster than Latifi. <laughs> yeah, he
1: said, some, <laughs> he said some silly comment. I mean, oh, that's right. Yeah, he, um, I think sometimes it's a little bit too vocal, which uh, doesn't come across well. But you know, the guy can drive.
0: So, so obviously, then we move into. 2017 you jump into the european f3 and then just take me through obviously um that jump so i mean earlier in the season you had a few um retirements early on um which might have just hampered the season a little bit what was that experience like for you 2017 jumping into a faster car uh, at the time and just just talk us through that
1: yeah. Um, so, yeah, European F3 at that time um, was a really, really cool category. I mean, the budgets for that were, you know, astronomical compared to, to F4. It was nearly double F4. Um, so just to have the opportunity to compete and drive that car was amazing. And probably to this day, um, you know, aside from the S5000, um, I would say the F3 was probably one of the coolest cars I've ever driven, um, you know. The, the level of professionalism and quality in that car is, is unreal. And, and the downforce was just, yeah, it was, it was nuts. It, it's a, the car's basically over aeroed. So it's got more, too much grip. Like it's, mm. it's got too much aero for the amount of power that it has. Um, so you could take some corners that, you know, shouldn't be flat, completely flat. Um, you know, it was Yeah, a weird feeling to be able to take a a corner like Zambort, for example, that first um, right-hander, completely flat. It's kind of like F1 is these days. It's just some corners, it's ridiculous how gripped up it is. Great drivers in the field too, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Schumacher, Eilert, Joe, Norris, some excellent drivers. Absolutely. We had a a really good generation at that time. I mean, um, yeah, it was was at a very high level um, in European F3.
0: And I, I this might sound like a negative person, but it's definitely not. But this is like I'm just looking at the your stats. So the years before that, you kind of come fourth in the championship, third in the championship. You win the championship, then you jump into European F3. Now, obviously, the it's a much bigger stage. I mean, we're talking about the quality in the field. But then you you go from you know top threes throughout your junior career to then coming thirteenth in the championship. What kind of role or how did how do you reflect on that season? in particular might have just been that it was you know some super quality drivers that you were racing against um but how do you reflect on on that just from a kind of a um performance point of view
1: um look the season was up and down um you know i had some some good moments um a lot of learning but uh i think there were a lot of guys that win that year you know in in their second or third year of F3. Um, You know, and when you look at, for example, Mick Schumacher's career, um, you know, generally it takes two years, uh, you know, Mm. to to really conquer a category. Um, Because, for example, when I jumped into F3, I'm competing against, you know, drivers like Lot or Maxi Gunter who are in their second, third year. So you imagine, you know, very high-quality drivers and they're more experienced than you. Um, So I think on reflection, um, you know, the season wasn't too bad, but what was probably a big shame was that I didn't get to to do a second year and really have you know a good crack with a second you know with at a second year's experience and really see how I I truly would have went then.
0: Well, and was that I think was that two thousand and seventeen the last year of F three as kind of the um, feeder before you went into F two and then F one because obviously I think there was a time when they changed from F three and then GP three kind of took over it in that regard and it became, I don't know, I think it's called Euroformulant now or something like that. Was that the last year of European F3 as we know no. it?
1: No, it was a year after. So what would have been okay. my second year? Um, okay. Yeah. And, and what
0: And what was your reason for the the move um, after that year? To GP3? Yeah, that's right.
1: Um, actually, because my sponsors um, weren't so happy at Banama Sport at the time. Yeah, uh, um, and uh, I wasn't able to move to any other team due to uh, the contract that I had, um, and because of that reason, um, yeah, basically, if I if I had to do a second year in F3, I had to stay with Van War, but my sponsors didn't want that, um, so they put me in GP3 for that reason.
0: And then, what was the when we we're just talking about the the performance of those cars? What was the difference between? Um, F3 at the time, and then the GP3 car.
1: Yeah. So the GP3 was a lot heavier um, and had a lot more power, but obviously less grip, less downforce. Um, Yeah. The the GP3 was around nearly 90 kilos heavier, which is a significant amount, Um, but it had 150 horsepower more. So the F3 had around 240 horsepower, Um, And the GP3 had, I mean, it was 390, 400. So, yeah, 150, 160 horsepower more. So, you know, fairly significant amount. Was it funner to drive? Uh, I would say the F3 was more fun to drive.
0: F3 was more fun to drive. Okay. And in relation to like wheel-to-wheel racing, what kind of provided the better opportunity for, not better, but like the easier opportunity for overtaking and and close racing? Uh, Definitely GP3 just because less downforce
1: less downforce um we had drs and also you know the tires are wearing a lot more so some people burn out their tires and fall backwards um you know some people were good at tire conservation in f3 we just had so much downforce and the tires hung on for for so long um so you know if you were even in pace it was very difficult to to pass someone
0: and then, sure. in general, how do you how do you reflect on on that season? So, two thousand and eighteen, when you look back on that, I mean, obviously, it's fairly similar to the season before. You jump into the category, yeah, um, you know, straight into it. Obviously, you would have been racing with people that have been in the in in the category for a bit longer than you. So, what are your like just general you know thoughts on that season on reflection?
1: Um, to be honest, for uh... On reflection, I've, I felt like I did a better job in GP three than the 3 um, You know, again, I was in my rookie season in in GP three, um, but the the team in general was struggling all season. Um, and you know, in those moments, uh, the first goal that you have is to to basically be much quicker than your teammates and ahead of them in in all the races and sessions that you have. Um, so in general, I was finishing much further ahead than my teammates, and even managed to to get two podiums. Um, so yeah, the only thing on on reflection that you know still hurts to this day is probably that that race that I, I lost a victory on the last lap in Russia.
0: <laughs> and uh, then and then I mean it's I mean it's so interesting. Like you just looking at uh, where your career was was progressing, you know, in 2015, 16, 17, I mean, it's on this super upward trajectory. And then obviously 2000 and um, then you move into, sorry, European F3, you don't get the second season there. I mean, had you have had, had or had, have you had had that second season in F3 to, once you'd kind of got your feet wet and you probably would have had a, you know, a much better year. Um, do you think that could have changed the trajectory of, at the very least, your European racing career if you were given that opportunity to do that second year once you'd got to know the car a bit better?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the last few years of my career, I've, I've always, especially at that stage, I was basically just doing single years, so rookie years, and never really getting the opportunity to have a that second year experience and really see where I'm truly at. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, like look at Mickie's career, you know, his, his first year in F3, um, his first year in F2, you know, I think he finished, he may have finished even outside the top 10 in the championship in those two years. Um, but then the following year went on to to win the championship. Um, so, yeah.
0: Never, do you ever regret, Though, I mean, obviously you're a little bit out of control because you kind of... Have to kind of do what's going to keep the sponsors happy, but you know, is there regret when you think about what could have been? Or I mean, obviously, um, it's still an amazing journey, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, how does how does that feel? Just I mean, thinking also that you you you'd beaten him, you know, earlier in your career. Yeah. Um. You know, not I want to say yeah, convincing like you're convincing in that championship, and then you kind of. Um, I mean, didn't get the opportunity to to grow at the same level that he did
1: yeah, yeah I mean I wouldn't say I wouldn't say regrets because it was never really in my control um, but you know in in hindsight, things could have been you know better if I had I had a second year in in uh, in f three or or g p three you know also to keep the sponsors happy and get some results um, because obviously when you're not getting results. Um, everything just becomes a a lot harder, you know, to bring sponsors on board and, you know, convince them to, yeah, to to invest money into your, your career and your car.
0: I mean, and then obviously 2019, 2020, you were driving some Carrera Cup, um, you know, Carrera Cup in Germany, super, doing some Super Cup races as well. How did you find that experience? Um, I mean, it's completely different to... what what you had been doing before in the single seater. So just as a, you know, change in category, what was that experience like for you jumping into, um, you know, GT car?
1: Um, Yeah, look, it was, um, I found it a very difficult transition, um, particularly in the Porsches because a lot of the technique and style that I'd learned in single seaters um, really doesn't work in the Porsche car. So I really had to kind of unlearn all my habits that I, would you know, Grown up, grew up driving with, um, you know, for many years before. Um, with the Porsches, I, I really never really found them natural to, to be able to drive. I always would second guess myself. So uh, it was a difficult stage in my career.
0: Was that, was that also just because of like the, the kind of performance of the cars that you'd been driving for so long and then you, you're jumping into something with, you know, significantly less? ability and it kind of just probably takes a little bit of time to adapt to
1: yeah yeah indeed i mean um especially when you've been driving single seaters for so long you know some things that just have become such a habit um hard to get out of um yeah um you get do you know any
0: specific like any specific you know traits off the top of your head that you kind of had to um try to um the, it's a the lot car. to do.
1: Yeah, um, I would say it was pretty much all in the braking, um, stopping the car and turning the car on the brake. Um, in Porsche, it tends to have a bit of a messy style, where a single seater, it's it's much more like a smooth transition where you bleed off the brake. Um, it's a very neat style. Porsches, you know, that neat style was does just doesn't work. You just can't turn the car properly in that in that car. Um, so. Yeah, I, I always struggled to really get that perfected and even just feeling the limit of the car in the Porsche. Um, you know, I, I, for example, when I jumped in the S5000, um, I went into the first race with no testing, no warm-up, no shakedown. And you know, within four laps, I was like, wow, I can feel everything that's going on in this car. You know, after a session, I could already feel what the limits were in the car. Um, it just came so much more natural and easy for me. That's
0: probably a good segue to jump into your more recent exploits. Obviously, um, you, you did the Porsche for what a couple of a year and a half, I think. Um, you end up coming back to race a Porsche car in Adelaide. Was it at the start of this year or last year? I can't remember exactly when it was. But then yep. the S S five thousand opportunity um, pops up for you. Uh, I'm just I'm just trying to remember. Did you race a car last year in S five thousand for a round or two? It was all just twenty twenty one?
1: It was just 2021.
0: And, and how did that opportunity come up?
1: Um, so basically Chris Landon, um, the series organizer, had contacted me just before I was going over for the Porsche. Mm. Um, and at that time, you know, I was still kind of trying to make it in GT. So I said, oh, I really appreciate the offer, but, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to, to spend my budget in, in single seaters at this stage. Um after the season in Porsche had finished, I wasn't really sure, you know, what the next step was was going to be. Um, and, you know, I, I started to lose a bit of confidence as well in my ability. So um, when he came and contacted me in December, you know, about the, the upcoming season, which was the 2021 season, um, you know, I really wanted to have a go in it and also just to see how I'd go driving a single-seater again um, because I'd struggled for for so long in the in the Porsche. And, um, yeah, it obviously turned out to become a really good season and, um, yeah, changed the trajectory in my career.
0: And I think at, at the beginning, were you planning to do the whole season or was it just a few rounds to begin with and then it turned into the whole campaign?
1: It was just to do the first race, to be honest, okay. when I first did it, so it was a one-off. Um, Yeah, the first weekend went a lot better than expected, particularly given that, um, you know, I went in not prepared, no testing, Um, you know, having a last minute deal basically done whilst doing hotel quarantine from arriving back in Australia. Um, So I would would say off the track last year was a a crazy season with, you know, not coming up with the budget and finding, finding budget and yeah getting the whole season together
0: yeah that's kind of moves into my next question so i mean in relation to the budgets that we, you we're you know used to in in europe what what's the kind of you know percentage or what kind of budget would you need for s5000 as a category
1: is it a lot more um, manageable um yeah i would say compared to europe yeah yeah indeed
0: and and what and what did i mean Obviously, it's a completely different car with a completely different uh, theory behind, you know, the way it goes racing compared to what you were used to in Europe. But what are the what are the biggest differences, um, you know, both negatively, but also the positive differences or the enjoyments
1: with driving, you know, that car? Um, I don't know if I have anything negative to say about the S five thousand. It's such a such a cool car, such a cool category. Um, Yeah. I mean, if, if there's anything that people whinge about, it's always that the tires are too hard, but I enjoy it because that's what makes the cars move around and slide around. Um, so that's what creates kind of the, you know, the eighties vibe where we're really hustling and wrestling the cars. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the horsepower that we have in S5,000 is unreal. I like the look of the massive rear tires at the back, small tires on the front. Um, and yeah, they're, they're, not the easiest cars to drive. There's, you know, a lot going on. Um, the power is not very forgiving. Um, but, uh, yeah, in overall, it's, aside from the F3, probably one of the coolest racing cars that I've driven. It's definitely the most fun I'm having in a race car. It's so good to hear, considering that
0: it's like such a new category and it's, you know, completely Australian. That's, that's such a, you know, cool perspective to be able to hear. Um, but then also, I mean, it's obviously still a very new category, um, you know, still, you know, growing it in even within Australia, you know, from your point of view, now that you've raced in it a year, um, you know, how, how does the category grow? I mean, obviously it's, it's going to happen somewhat naturally as well, but what things do you think the category could implement or, or do to increase its, um, I don't know, to increase its viability for young drivers?
1: I would say um, mainly keeping the budgets low, which is what they've been good at at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean uh, most categories are, are so expensive in uh, in Australia. Even you know, Porsche career Cup, for example, I I don't understand how the budgets are so expensive. Um, <laughs> On so average,
0: what what are we talking about for career Cup?
1: Carrera Cup, uh, when when I was asking for for offers, um, it's probably around half a mil. Well Jeez. Yeah, yeah. It's like...
0: You yeah. even a to to race in that category.
1: <laughs> I don't know how some people manage to raise the budget for it. It's unreal, unreal how expensive it is. So Porsche doesn't even... Um, sorry, the S5000 doesn't go anywhere near that.
0: What's kind of the, just an average budget, roughly, for the S5000?
1: Um, so at the moment... Uh, it was around twenty thousand per round, but that's without the lease of the car. So, yeah, I had a sponsor that was covering the lease last year. So, I'm not sure what the, the budget would be without lease. Um, but uh, yeah, we're uh, sorry with the lease, but without the lease, it was uh twenty k roughly per round.
0: And then, obviously, talking about the championship itself, I mean, it was a pretty awesome championship all year between yourself and Tom Randall, I mean, another uh, young Australian driver who, um, again, tried to, to make it in Europe's back. Um, it's kind of got his foot in the door in supercars now, which is great to see, but what are your, um, you know, reflections of that season? And also just from a comp- competition point of view between the two of you, you know, how does that, how does that rate in, in your career so far?
1: Um, yeah, no, it was really cool um, to be battling with Thomas. I mean, um yeah it's it's really good to see as well that he's progressed into v8s and you know made it to the to the really professional level um i had a great rivalry with him and and especially being teammates across the season i was able to to really learn from him um in the in the early rounds and and catch up um yeah so uh that was was a good battle i, I enjoyed racing against him
0: that's awesome and then obviously just the the progression from that. So obviously you're back in Australia now. You're racing in S5000. Um, kind of what is, what's your your view on 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 your career moving forward? What are you you know what are your ambitions? What are you trying to to get into at this stage? Is I mean is you know supercars, you know a realistic expectation for you uh, to try and push into, or, or you know what are your what are your
1: goals in that regard? Um, so at the moment my my plan is to do S5000 for season two. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think beyond that, uh, you know, yeah, to make it in Australia, you have to be in, in V8 supercars. So, um, yeah, I'd like to see how I'd adapt to that car. I mean, you know, previously I struggled in the in the Porsches, but um, from what I've been told, the the supercars are a completely different animal again. So I guess until I drive it and jump in it, I won't really know how I'm going to adapt. Uh, you know, I know I can drive it. A single seater, pretty well, but uh, the question is whether I'd be able to adapt to a supercar. And,
0: yeah, is, is that well. something? Is that something that you're actively, or maybe not pursuing? Because obviously, you're you're um, you already got your plans for twenty twenty two organised. But is that something that you know you're thinking about moving forward?
1: Correct. Yeah,
0: definitely,
1: definitely awesome. something in the pipeline. Did um
0: did COVID play any role in in you deciding to stay here and not going back to Europe? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So then, obviously, just just to, to finish up, I just thought I had just a few questions about, you know, Australians trying to move overseas. And we spoke earlier about, you know, seeing, you know, Piastri go overseas after you and, you know, James Warden and, and, and that like. But obviously, to see more Australians, you know, making that plunge overseas. You know, is there anything that you think that you know Australian motorsport can implement or do to make that transition more viable um, or to make it a, a little bit easier I mean obviously the, the reality is it's half, half the world away but just from your experience is there anything that you think could be you know beneficial to helping us get more Australians overseas
1: um, I think what uh, the, the motorsport Australia um organisation has organized now with the Ferrari Drive Academy shootout in um, you know here in Australia. I think that's already bridging the gap to Europe and enabling some young Aussie kids to, to have the opportunity to to you know give it a crack in Europe. So mm-hmm. um, yeah I think more programs like that would be would be really what's uh, what would fill that gap.
0: Awesome. Um just to finish off so yeah. Obviously, we've spoken about a few serious things, but um, something that you know I have a pet peeve with and you know, a few of my brothers who are part of the podcast as well, we, we tend to have an, an issue with. And I just want to get some driver opinions on it. It's completely BS. Um, but when we're looking at a lot of our young drivers now, particularly in supercars, the thing yep. that is becoming super frustrating is that their helmets don't have visors on them. <laughs> yeah. i wanted to and and i've you know um i don't know if you listen to the beyond the uh, below the bonnet podcast with caruso but i'd um sent caruso a few uh, messages saying you need to talk about this in supercars and he in his podcast and he said yeah it's something that you know annoys me as well i just want to get some proper driver's perspectives you know what is your view on the visorless helmet as an aesthetic thing
1: aesthetically it definitely doesn't look good uh, but the reason why drivers do it is for the heat. For the heat. For the heat.
0: you think that's a good enough reason not, not to put a visor on?
1: Um, well, when you got a lot of television cameras and onboards like you do in V8, it's probably not um, because, obviously, you're getting a lot of footage. But, uh, yeah, I mean...
0: So, so, when, yeah. so when you're racing in, in, in the Bathurst 1000 in a couple of years, um, with Tom Randall in the
1: same team because you'd worked together at BRM,
0: will you, be, will you be driving with a visorless helmet?
1: No, 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 no. You won't see me with a visorless helmet. You're probably, to be honest, you'd probably see me with the visor down in quali and uh, in the race, it might be cracked slightly open.
0: I see it's like quarter crack.
1: Yeah, I'd say, yeah, quarter crack. Just to get that little bit of air, but so that you can't see my eyes. No, that's it. I
0: love it. I love it. Mate, <laughs> Anthony,
1: Anthony's so traditional with everything. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Can't do, I can't do the visor. It just reminds me too much of, you know, British touring cars. It's just, yeah. anyway, <laughs> it's not my thing. It's not yeah. my thing.
1: No, I no, smoke no, on I'll, it. I fully agree on it, man. Fully agree on no, it. It definitely just looks much more aesthetic when the visor's, you know, that three-quarter crack.
0: 100% <laughs> agree. Mate, I think I think we'll leave it there for tonight. Thanks so much for jumping on. Really appreciate um, it.
1: Yeah. Very welcome, very welcome, guys. Pleasure to be on. Cheers, buddy. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank mate. You. Thank you. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening to that podcast. Um, if you're listening on YouTube, please give us a like on the video and su- and subscribe if you haven't done so already. And if you're listening on any of our other podcasting networks please share it with those people around you that you might think are interested thank you so much for joining us uh this week and we hope to have some more great content coming out next week thank you so much and have a great night